A few years ago, I found a collection of the last words of famous people. And it was kind of, a, it was kind of compelling to see how many times what a person's life had meant until the day of their death was reflected in the final words they said just before dying. Uh, more times than I'd like to count, I've run to the hospital to be beside people in a church I've pastored or, or simply people I, I love outside of church because it's bad news and people are gathering at the bedside they want to hear last words, and they want to say the last words on earth to the person who's dying. The last words of Jesus are found in several dense chapters in the middle of John's gospel. I'd like you to look, please, in John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, please, please help yourself to one near you in the seat beneath you or a seat near you. There'll be a Bible in the translation I'm using to teach this morning, John 15. John is the fourth gospel, the most intimate of the gospels. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the gospels are portraits. They're historically accurate, God-inspired accounts of the life of Jesus. They're written by four different people, and they give you four different perspectives. Of the four Gospels, John brings you the closest to Jesus because he was the disciple who was apparently closest to Jesus. He was the disciple, John says, whom Jesus particularly loved. And in John 15, you're listening to last words. If you had a red-letter edition, you'll see that most of chapter 13, all of 14, 15, 16, 17... John records one long, continuous teaching from Jesus for His disciples. It's recorded in Scripture because His words mean something today for this single reason. He's alive. Since Easter, we've been considering the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence for it, and especially what difference it makes to us. The words of Jesus as last words before dying are far more important than any other human being's words before dying because He's going to teach the disciples, He seems in these chapters, to finally have their attention. They're really listening with open hearts. He's trying to tell them as best He can, which is perfectly, everything that they'll need to know to endure what is coming, which is His arrest right in front of them, a mockery of a trial, a series of brutal beatings, humiliation that would make the most hardened person cringe, and then watching Him die on a cross. But as we begin to read this, you'll see that the assumption that Jesus has is that His life is going to continue soon. He has promised them over and over again that His life is the fulfillment of every promise that the prophets ever made, that everything they've read in their Scriptures and they've heard in the synagogue all their lives boils down to Him. In John chapter 5, for instance, He rebuked the religious people of His day saying this, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that give witness about Me. So these are big words. 
These are more important words than words that are simply remembered. You see, the thing with dead men is they can no longer help you. doesn't matter who the person is, no matter how notable and important, the best they can offer you in death is their example. George Washington may inspire you. This may seem too obvious for a pastor to say from behind a pulpit, but George Washington today can do nothing to help you. His memory may inspire you. It may remind you of things, but it'll be quite literally up to you to know who he is, to remember his example, to be inspired by it, and in some way to change your life because of it. George Washington himself can do nothing for you because he died. He's separated from you from death. The biggest thing that people often forget about Jesus and the resurrection is it is not merely a historical miracle to be contemplated and to be admired because of the overwhelming evidence that God has offered in His Word. The fact that Jesus came back to life means that He can keep promises like this, that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. John 15 assumes, and Jesus explains what it means that He will be alive after death as promised, and everything He's telling them here has His mind set on their joy. You might want to remember that as you read the Bible. Everything Jesus ever says to His disciples is intended for their joy, even the painful things. Even the things that hurt, it's all set on your joy because He truly does know what's best. He truly has authority to teach us, and in John 15, He's particularly going to tell them that as the one who will continue to live, He is quite literally going to give them life. We'll work through the first half of John 15, but I want you to see the heart of His teaching, and in fact, we'll read it together. It's John 15, verses 4 and 5. This is Jesus just before the cross, knowing full well that He will take His life back from the dead as promised, giving His disciples instructions for what to continue to do once He is alive again. Here's what He said. Read with me. Jesus said to us, His disciples, this, "'Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine,' Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As is so common with Jesus, he's going to use a word picture to explain a deep spiritual truth. There's a lot here, but the word picture is simple. It has two parts. He says, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine. That's his part, what's ours? And the implication is, if we stay close with him, what will happen? We'll bear fruit. You'll have the life that God intended. Your life will produce, in other words, what God wants. And the reason anyone raises a harvest of any kind is to nourish people. A harvest is to not to be admired and to sit and rot in the fields. It's intended to bless and to help other people. But this verse 5, which I've loved probably from my teenage years, 
is one that I am so quick to disbelieve in the way I actually act. Jesus knows his place. He knows who he is. He's telling me who I am. Simply as this, I am the vine. Bruce, you are a branch. And then this simple observation. If that's true, if he is the source of life, and I am, an ex- I am connected to him, and I will bear fruit, this simple truth. Whoever abides in me, whoever is connected to me, stays with me, spends time with me, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is. That person alone is the one who bears much fruit. Here's the part that I don't believe in the way I act. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And too often I act like I don't believe that. And what my actions show, which actions always tell the truth about a person's belief, you can tell me what you believe all day long, but really only I have to do is observe you for a while to see what you actually believe. What I believe is something more like this. Apart from Jesus, I can at least get started. And He matters, and He's in charge, and He's stronger than I, and I will need His help at certain points, but I can get going now. You ever do anything like that? Now, I would never verbalize that and tell Jesus or anyone else that's how I'm going to live this Tuesday, but it happens. And this metaphor, this word picture that runs the length of these first 17 verses in John 15 has that simple truth at the heart of it. The normal Christian life is intended to be fruitful and will be fruitful because it's the life of Jesus Himself. So the first thing I learned from this passage is this, I am always to remember that my life, our life in Christ is a loving relationship with Jesus. The Savior of the world, the one who will die on the cross, will bring me so close that we are organically connected. He literally is giving me His life. See, it's a personal relationship. Too many times, at least in the way Christians think about salvation, they think that God sits across some sort of heavenly table. And when they start believing the right things or especially say the right words, at that point, God slides the package of eternal life over to them. They take it, go home with it, and that's it. And then many people feel free to continue to live however they've been living up to that point. The Bible has no concept of anything like that. What it has is a personal relationship so close that Jesus describes in this word picture our life with Him as the connection between a vine and one of its branches. And the concept is very simple. So long as that branch is genuinely connected to the vine and remains connected to it, it will produce fruit because that's what the vine does. In other words, His part is to give life and our part is to stay close. What are you to do with Jesus? You are to stay close to Him, not as a concept, not as an idea, not as an expression of a creed compared to the creeds of other world religions. You have a Savior. And my morning prayer, if I could just bring you into my office for a few minutes before the service, I was burdened by some things, and what I told the Lord several times was simply this. I'm a great sinner, but you're a great Savior.
And I just stayed with them until I had personal assurance between the two of us that I had confessed those sins, I had given him those concerns, those fears, everything that was clouding my vision of him. And funny thing, my vision of him gets cloudy and my vision of me gets really sharp focus. You ever notice that? Can't see God, boy, I can see me. I love me some me, as a football player famously said a few years ago. Jesus cuts through all of that with these verses. This is actually a matter of life and death. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Whatever did Jesus mean by that? I spoke to a very mature Christian after the service last night, and they said, you know, I've never really liked this passage as much as I know it matters because... I don't know what to do with verse 6. Theologians have written thousands of pages trying to dissect verse 6. Jesus is actually just following his metaphor. People who are genuinely connected to him and stay in him will have eternal life, and it won't be a sort of almost striving hard kind of life. It will be an abundant, prosperous life. It might be marked by poverty or persecution and many tears on earth, as was the case of almost all of his first disciples, but it will be the kind of life that produces the life of Jesus so that when people meet his genuine disciples, they learn things about him. That's the best way to be a witness. And if the world disbelieves our witness, it's because our words oftentimes are not preceded and followed by love. And we meet people who are nothing like Jesus, so when they speak of Jesus, their testimony, however biblically true and accurate according to the Word of God, falls on deaf ears because it doesn't seem credible. Because you're telling me about a Savior that does not seem to have affected your life at all. One reason I love the ministry of Ray Comfort, he is the same person in private and public. Not many celebrities can say that, even Christian celebrities. Now, you may never have a big platform, but understand what Jesus is telling you here. His heart, His words are set on your joy, as I'm going to show you, and you will have life as you're connected to Him, and there will be many that will be close to Him, but ultimately will not stay in Him. You see that all across the Gospel of John, and you especially see that here in these chapters because Jesus has literally washed the feet of all of His disciples, and one of them stood up with clean feet to walk out into the world to get wicked men with weapons to come back and arrest Jesus. Judas was close to the vine. He did not remain in the vine. He ultimately trusted himself, his plan, his will. He loved money. All sorts of things were wrong with the life of Judas. So what do you do with the troubling verse 6? You take Jesus very, very seriously. And you don't put the pressure on yourself. You simply make sure that you are genuinely trusting in him. In the first part of this passage, let's go back to verse 1. Jesus says something that, again, concerns some Christians. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. In plainer English, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he celebrates and praises. Is that what it says? No. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. For what reason? Well, that seems a little rough. I really am connected to Jesus. I'm enjoying His life. I'm not merely signing a creed as important as creeds are. I'm actually enjoying the life of Jesus, and I begin to express His life, and it does good for others because that's what fruit does. The vine does not have fruit for itself. It has fruit for the blessing and the help of others. And in all of that, I discover that as Jesus gives me life, there's a second person at work here. It is the Father who sent Him to love me, die for me, come back from the dead so that I may have eternal life, and that Heavenly Father has a different role in my life. What's He doing? We're studying the Bible here. Come on now. What's He doing? Pruning. In plain language, because we're in 21st century Huntington Beach, what is pruning? cutting things away. Now, why does a good gardener cut things away from a living vine? So that it will grow even better than it currently is. And I'm so glad that trees don't scream (laughs) or nobody could bear to cut them. You wouldn't want to prune them. A few years ago, we had a very destructive gardener pay a visit to the olive tree in front of our house. And he was a bad gardener because what he left basically was a stump. He just destroyed it. It took the tree years to recover. He just did a bad job. He was in a hurry. He just wanted to get paid in a very short period of time. He was paid, and I made a mental note, never again, not this guy. A good gardener is never paying more attention to the plant he's trimming than when he's actually applying the scissors. What's that mean? As you follow Jesus, please understand this. You need to expect God to cut things out of your life. It's going to happen. You stay in the vine, you spend time with Jesus, you start bearing fruit, your character starts changing from the inside out, your actions, your emotions, your will are all transformed to look more like Jesus. You find yourself behaving more like He does, forgiving as He does, loving as He does, including a vast amount of people who don't deserve forgiveness and don't deserve your love. That's Jesus. He did come to a world like me, filled with great sinners, and He is a great Savior, and that's why He loved me, and that's why He set His mind, His life on my joy, even at the expense of His death. Hebrews says that when Jesus was on the cross, He endured the shame, and He looked ahead past that scorn and past that contempt of man because He had His mind set on joy the joy of forgiving sinners and making them part of the family of God and making them over time more like Himself. That's what Jesus has set His mind on. And every part of this process will be good for you, all of it. It won't all feel good, but it will all be good for you. The discipline of God where the gardener takes up the shears of the Word of God and applies them to your life and convicts you of things that He wants that you've enjoyed in your life before Him that He wants you now to leave behind, 
all of that may be painful, but it's going to be good for you. Hebrews speaks about that as well. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he means here, sons and daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This means if you're being corrected by God, that is a proof that you are his daughter, that you are his son. They ruined it with a movie called Cheaper by the Dozen. But there was a book called Cheaper by the Dozen that told the true story of a motion efficiency expert, a time efficiency expert, I guess over a hundred years ago now, who had a dozen children, six boys, six girls, hence Cheaper by the Dozen. And he was a genius. He was actually helped set modern industrial America on its super efficient course. But he was also wildly absent-minded. And his wife, who was just as brilliant as he was, she tended to the home and to the children. On one occasion, his children who wrote the book speak of mother going away, leaving father in charge, and all the moms know how, what a dicey proposition that can be sometimes. Sometimes, not always. And she came back and got a report and said, well, how were the kids? She said, they were all great except that one. And she said, well, dear, he doesn't belong here. He's, he lives next door. Okay? <laughs> Just had a lot of trouble with the 13th child, as it turned out. That's the sort of truth that this verse is delivering. The Lord disciplines the one he, what? one he loves. And he chastises, he punishes, he corrects every son and daughter whom he welcomes into his family. And that all, again, is for your good. Look what it says down in verse 11, the same passage. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true? You ever seen a five-year-old get his just desserts after behaving like a monster? And then turning to his father, his mother, saying, I didn't appreciate it when it was happening, but I want to thank you <laughs> for having the courage to correct me in front of all these people. I was unhappy for a moment, but I know this will make me a better man. And ten years from now, I will rise up and call you blessed. Ever seen that happen? No. Because for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but look, God has His mind set on the outcome. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The discipline, the correction of God is always purposeful. It is training for you. It is correction. It is discipline. It is not mere destructive punishment. The gardener steps into the vineyard and takes those who were genuinely connected and genuinely loving Jesus and cuts things out of their lives. And what you do all the while is you read his word so that you can hear his voice. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He can say that now. Don't take the time now, but back in John 13, while Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples with Judas present, he said, you are clean, but not all of you. Now they're down to 11. 
11 genuine disciples are listening to Jesus, and He is telling them something important. His Word has cleansed them. His Word has made them different. Look in 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All the Word of God, both the parts that confront you and leave you sad because you've disobeyed Him and you see written on the page why life has been difficult and what a toll sin and disobedience and procrastination to obey God has taken you and the promises that make you, make your heart sing and make you understand that God is too good to be true except that He actually is true. And he really does love you this way. He loves you, as Charles Spurgeon said, to look at the cross. You would think that God loved you more than he loved his own son. And all that varied, rich word of God in the Bible that you're reading, all of that, the painful parts and the joyful parts are all set so that you will have the joy of Jesus in you and you may show that joy forward to 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 others. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is why your daily habits are so vitally important. And I'm speaking to you as your fellow struggler. If you're reaching for the phone first, you're ruining your relationship with Jesus. Simple as that. Ironic. Catch that? Now, there's no guilt here. I have no idea who it was. It doesn't matter to me. I've done the same thing. I've interrupted my own preaching with my phone. God and and His Word have competition. This is your fellow struggler speaking to you. The tyranny of the urgent to be continually connected to other people and to the Internet will fight you for life for joy, for peace. If I hear my voice, my wife's voice, the voice of others through emails or through text messages before I meet with God, it's hard for me to catch sight of Him again later in the day. You have to start with Him. If you don't, you're slowly choking the life out of yourself. It's the age we live in. It's a real thing. This isn't a curmudgeon speaking in judgment of others. This is a fellow struggler telling you the effects I feel by continual distraction for our life. God wants to cut things out of your life so that your fruit and your joy will be greater. The way He does that is His Word which brings you to Jesus, who cleanses you, saves you, makes you, to use another word picture, makes you part of His flock. He presents Himself and names Himself your good shepherd that will face death and the wolf for you. He is your older brother who brings you by adoption into the family of God. He is, as this passage will show, He is also your friend He is your king, but he is willing to call himself your friend. All of those truths, all of that correction, all of that joy, all of that hope is found in his word, but you have to hear it if it's going to do any good for you. So careful. 
careful that you order your day. Let's not talk about life. Let's talk about a day. Ordering a life is just way too big of a concept. Be careful how you order the rest of this day, and especially Monday, so that you hear the voice of God. It's a subtle attitudinal shift, and it makes all the difference in the world. If you're reading the Bible to read the Bible, you may fall into religious drudgery, grind through a few chapters, hear nothing of God, apply it to no part of your life, and walk away unchanged and feeling somewhat better because at least you read the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, what you're listening for and speaking to Him in prayer about is, Lord, help me hear your voice. God, you're the gardener. Jesus, you're the vine. Help me. Show your life. Change me from the inside out. Gardener, here I am. There are things in my life that I don't even know are draining the life out of me. Would you show me something in your word today and apply it by your Holy Spirit that will cause me to surrender that to you as you cut it out of my life. That's a real personal living relationship. The liturgy or the drudgery or the mere spiritual habit of reading a few words and going away unchanged has been a blight to Christians for a very long time if they think only of reading a book rather than hearing the very word and voice of God who loves you and has set His mind on your joy. Here's where prayer comes in in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, that's kind of a big promise, don't you think? What does that mean? It means this. Fourth observation from this passage, staying close to Jesus teaches you to ask for things that please Him. Answered prayer, Jesus says, happens in two conditions. You're spending time with Him, you are close to Him, and His words are staying in you. In those conditions, when you pray and you speak to Him, then God does what you ask. In other words, staying close to Jesus teaches you to ask for things that please Him. This is why as a man I'm currently being helped and discipled by, wonderful guy, it's taught me so much in the last few months about following Jesus. He's made this very simple observation. Most people pray more than they read Scripture. Now, why is that? Well, because it's as long as I'm the one doing the talking, I don't mind. You ever notice that? Someone will say, oh, I pray all day. Good. Did God have a chance to talk back to you through His Word? Not through your impressions as you prayed, but through His actual Word. Listen, folks, we have a treasure here, a treasure that I neglect sometimes to my own harm. This is what God said. He put it in writing. It's unchanging. The cults and the traditions of men are continually changing. They're deleting some documents and updating others. They're denying historical connections to things they once wrote down. This is unchanging. Why? Because it is God's eternal Word that will not perish, that will always have God's intended effect so long as we listen. When we listen and stay close to Jesus, our prayers change over time. Have you ever had the experience of starting to pray in a certain direction, and as you pray and struggle and hear the Word of God, He slowly changes your heart so that you're praying for something entirely different? That 
That's a living personal relationship. That's the word of Jesus abiding in you and changing your very requests so that when you ask for things that are according to the will of God, of course he answers. I want to be as practical as I can, and I'm nearly done. I've only experienced this in the United States, and I'm not speaking in criticism of it. I just want to be very, very practical because it often strikes me after I hear your questions, and I always welcome them after the service or in email, that sometimes I talk way past the questions that people actually have. Here in the United States, I discovered a custom where one person is praying aloud, and as that person finishes in prayer, the others say along with them, in Jesus' name. And several people have asked me, if I don't say, in Jesus' name, will God still hear me? It's an important question. You say, praying in Jesus' name does not mean tacking that phrase onto the end of whatever I've asked. Praying in Jesus' name has a much deeper meaning than that. That's a whole other sermon, but it certainly means this. When I pray in Jesus' name, I pray not only in His authority, I pray as He would. And because I am me, and I'm different from Him, and He's in the process of making me more like Him, sometimes it takes a long time in prayer until I'm praying not only in the authority of Jesus, but according to the will of Jesus and the Father. And that's when those prayers come to reality. God doesn't give me every single thing I want for the same reason I didn't give my six-year-old everything he wanted the first time he asked. His request is my six-year-old, pick pick the boy, it doesn't matter, it's true of both. Sometimes they weren't malicious, they were just ignorant. No, you can't have the power tool. No, you can't have the saw. Under no circumstances may you have the saw. But he wants the saw. What's wrong? He's ignorant. He doesn't know. Your heavenly Father knows all about you. He has laid down the life of his Son so that you may have life and joy and a life that produces the life of God to bless others. And staying close to Jesus and staying close to Jesus alone means that you will be able to ask him for things that please him. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Again, it's a personal relationship. When you're resting in Jesus, you're resting in the one alone who loves you perfectly. Here's another uncomfortable passage. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Do you notice how often commandment is coming up? That's for a good reason. Watch. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what he's about to do. Hours later, he will be arrested. Here's the Lord of glory. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, wait a second. Would you keep a friend who said that to you? 
hey, Bill, I just, I just want you to know, man, it's been great to be your friend for these past 18 years, and I just want to tell you something from my heart. You'll be my friend as long as you do everything I say. You keeping that friend? Probably not, right? Probably getting him some kind of help. Why does Jesus say it? Because he's now willing to be a friend, and he will be the best friend you've ever had, but make no mistake, he's the king of glory. He's the creator of all things. See, the reason those words sound absurd on my lips is anyone I speak to is my human equal. Years ago, there was this t-shirt going around that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Did you ever see that? And that was a nodding glance, I think, to John 15. Let me help you with that. Whatever else Jesus says, he is your friend, but he is not your homeboy. That means that Jesus is part of your gang. He's part of your crew. You hang out with him. It doesn't work like that. He's the creator of all things. John says in this same gospel, there's not a single thing that was made that was made without him. And out of love and mercy and grace, that word that made everything that is came down and lived as human flesh among us so that we could be welcomed into the, fa- into the family of God. He is king and creator. He is eternal. He alone is eternal. You're going to be immortal if he gives you eternal life but you will taste death, and you had a beginning. You are categorically forever different than he is, and he is willing in spite of his supremacy, his eternality, his unchangeability, everything that God is. He is willing to be your friend, but you're not equals. And you will express friendship, and you will remain in friendship so long as you remember that the king is willing to be your friend but you have to do what he says. Don't get it twisted. Don't be confused by this. Staying close to Jesus means keeping him in charge. That's the continual struggle. That's why I led with that confession when I read that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think to myself in the way I act, I'm not sure about that. I've been doing this for a while. I've been on this earth for a while. I have smart friends. I've got a beautiful wife. She agrees with me. I can at least get started. No, I can't. Not one good thing will come from my self-will. The good life, what is good in my life that will be produced is when I stay close enough to Jesus so that he is in charge. The reason we struggle to hear God's voice and are reluctant to speak to him in prayer has one simple spiritual reason, and that is self-confidence rather than Jesus' confidence. When I charge out into the world to do what I think is best without hearing from him and without going with him through continual dependent prayer, I'm expressing at that moment, regardless of my creed, that I think I know better. Make sense? Does that make any sense in your life, or am I up here all by myself? That is the struggle of discipleship, to keep Jesus in charge of what? Everything. Money and giving and conversations and forgiveness and friendships and jobs and wayward children and fear when you're young and fear when you're older and disappointment in middle age and the grace to age well and finish strong. 
In all of those seasons of life, Jesus is king over all of it, and he is gloriously, blessedly willing to be your friend. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father. I have made known to you everything there is to know about God. Jesus is showing us. Verse 16, listen, he's in charge. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's how in charge he is. He chose you so that you will bear good fruit and that fruit will remain. It will last forever. And as you walk that path with him, you will pray, he will listen, and here's the final proof. Here's where it really gets uncomfortable. Verse 17 says, these things I command you so that you will what now? Love who? Oh, boy. It'd been a lot easier if he would have said, love me. Right? Isn't it easy to sing, oh, how I love Jesus? Look across the crowd honestly and say, oh, how I love all of you. Mm. Final lesson. The proof of staying close to Jesus is you love others. You love others the same way he loved you. When you didn't deserve it, when you weren't looking for him, he loved you. This is preemptive love. John expressed it in his letter like this, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What am I trying to tell you, church, to enjoy and share the life of Jesus? You have to stay close to Jesus. It's simple as that. All the time in my life, every day, every afternoon, every moment that I have chosen my will over the will of Jesus, that I have chosen to ponder a problem more than I have to hear his voice and pray about it. Just give you my testimony. It's all been wasted. It's all been weeds. It's so much dust blowing in the wind. There is no fruit in it. Looking back after all these years, there's no joy in it either. Joy comes from Understanding that Jesus alone is the one who gives life, as I'm connected to Him, I bear fruit, and what I have to do to do that is to stay close to Him. You have that opportunity this morning. You have that opportunity now. Let's pray together. Can I just straight up ask you, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Would you say He's in charge? I'm not asking if you have respect for him. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer before. I'm asking you whether he's in charge. If he's not, maybe he's doing a miracle of his power right now to bend your will to his so that you're ready to give up on you and start trusting him. If so, could I ask you in Jesus' name to make him your savior and boss? To say, Jesus, I'm sorry for sin. Please save me. I agree with you. I echo Bruce's prayer. I'm a great sinner, but you're a great Savior. Please come and save me. If you've never knelt your will down before Jesus and said to him, you take my sin, you be in charge, I'm giving you that specific invitation this morning that you would call him Savior, Boss, Lord. You would put him in charge. Then the life that he wants, his life will be produced in you.
Christian, maybe like me, you've fought him, you've put him out of charge, you've taken over for a while when things are good. Would you talk to him? He's listening. He's alive. He can help you. Would you confess that sin? And any of you, make decisions, have questions, please use the connection card and let us know what God's put on your heart. Lord, this offering is for you. This is part of our obedience to you. The prayers that are being offered, the hearts that are being changed, decisions that are being made, sinners who are asking you to save them, this is your work. We ask that you would work powerfully that you would overcome our resistance. Not one disciple here, Lord, would resist your word and your will. That you would save, Lord, all that it pleases you to save. And that you would bring every disciple, beginning with me, into conformity with you. And we give you, Lord, these decisions pray expressed in prayer, maybe recorded on a card, and we give this offering, all of it, this song of worship, it's all to express that you are our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.